Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, joined by Corey McCartney here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios. We're excited to be with you as we've got about 90 good minutes of Braves and baseball talk to bring your way. We appreciate you joining us, and of course, we'll be getting ready uh, up to the top of the hour when Sunday Night Baseball will, uh, at least tentatively, is set to begin as the Braves and Cardinals wrap up their three-game weekend series. Corey, as always, it's a busy week for the Braves, an important week for the Braves, because they're a club that has been chasing the first-place Mets for quite some time. There have been opportunities to close some ground. I think the Braves have taken advantage of just about all of them they could, but one on Saturday got away from them with a 5-4 lead in the ninth inning. Kinley Jansen had a meltdown, a blown save. First one in a while for him, but nonetheless, the sting was very much there for the Braves, who were not able to pick up that victory. And now on a Sunday in which the Mets have already lost, they still find themselves trying to make up some ground before they come home and battle a, a couple of teams that they should be able to beat up on. But long story short, this is an important road trip. They're all important road trips. This is a series in which they're matching up with another first-place club, and it feels like the Braves just don't have much room for error. Not at all. I mean, certainly the atmosphere in St. Louis has made it feel like postseason yeah. baseball. I mean, that ninth inning, uh, you know, I, I know things didn't break the Braves' way, and Kenley Jansen ran into a lot of trouble that we're going to run into, uh, talk about later on here. Um, but just the, the atmosphere was was absolutely electric, and it felt like uh, October every single minute of it. And, you know, the Braves have managed to get that thing down to one and a half games. It just feels like they get so close. Uh, and then something just keeps happening, and you know certainly uh, you know unable to get things done despite winning, uh, leading four to nothing on Saturday, which was big. Yeah, it was big, and those are the things that as you look back and you find games, and l- listen, they all count the same. All 162 of them, you win them, that's great. You lose them, they all count the same at the end. It just feels like when you are in crunch time, it magnifies everything quite a, a bit. And we will talk about Kinley Jansen's struggles over the weekend, if you will, what his place is, and of course how the Braves bullpen shakes out, and what if anything. Could we be seeing over the weeks to come as the Braves are looking to set themselves up for success far more times than they want to deal with games like they had to on Saturday? One thing that's really notable, of course, as they head into Sunday Night Baseball is the absence of Ronald Acuna Jr. He was out of the lineup on Saturday. We saw him have a little bit of trouble running the bases, looked just a little bit gimpy, I would say. It would probably be the best way to describe it. And that's something that he's had to deal with, Corey. I think this is just the reality of coming back from a major knee surgery is that you are going to have good days, you are going to have bad days. And for Ronald, he's just had some soreness that they're hoping with the days off this weekend. And, of course, Monday's off day could get him back on track as the Braves come home. Yeah, as he said through his interpreter, Franco Garcia, uh, that he's been, really been dealing with some in pretty intense knee pain the last few days. Uh, we knew there was going to be stretches like this where things were going to feel good. They weren't. He broke it down a couple weeks ago. Yeah. That's exactly what he's been dealing with. Just you know, you're, you just got to get through this stuff to get to that point where he's out there and feeling like himself each and every day. The production's been there at times. It's just mm-hmm. not been that consistent level that I think we got so accustomed to when he reached superstardom. Yeah, and it's the home runs, of course. You want 
want to see a lot more of those. Here in the month of August, though, Ronald's been finding his way on base. He's been taking his walks. He's cut his strikeouts down some from uh, the prior, what, month or six weeks. And, you know, he's been hitting well over 300 this month. So hopefully the Braves have him back in sooner than later. We have so much to get to here on From the Diamond here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we continue on with our discussion of this week in Braves baseball and get you sent for Sunday Night Baseball. Back after this on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more from the Diamond with Graham McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We appreciate you joining us here on a Sunday evening. We're marching up to the top of the hours. The Braves and Cardinals will wrap up their three-game weekend series. And, of course, there has been a lot of Braves news and notes to talk about from the week that was. That's why we do it and this week in Braves baseball. So, Corey, uh, let's talk a little bit about what went wrong on Saturday night. And I think we can all point at directly uh, what the biggest thing that went wrong was, and it was that ninth inning and the way that things went and unraveled on Kenley Jansen. He got a line drive to shortstop for the first out of the ninth immediately, and you thought, okay, maybe it's going to be one of those nights where you just need a couple of rockets, hit at somebody, maybe get a strikeout, and uh, call it a night. But for Kenley after that, it just did not go that way. There was a double, there was a walk, there was a wild pitch, there was a hit batsman, there was an infield single, and ultimately there was a bases-loaded walk that sent the Cardinals to a 6-5 victory and I know just based on the interactions that I got on Twitter last night after the game, which were mixed, to say the least. But, you know, number one, let me say this. That's a frustrating loss, and you're certainly allowed to feel frustrated by that loss. I can promise you the Braves did, and I promise you Kenley Jansen did, and everybody gets that part of it. This is not a fun time to lose games like that either. But I kind of draw the line a little bit with the fact that, you know, who else were you going to throw out there in the ninth inning? I think was the number one question. When you'd already used A.J. Mentor, you'd already used Rysel Iglesias, you'd already used Colin McHugh, I guess you could make an argument for Tyler Matzik, but he hasn't been the same guy that he was a year ago. And if the argument's that anybody's better than the guy that was in there, then I'm going to say we're going to have to go check our math and do our homework a little bit more. Kenley Jansen has been a pretty good closer for the Braves this year. I would say a good closer for the Braves this year. He has blown five saves. The Braves have not lost all five of those games. That's also worth noting. And he had not blown a save since that one against the Dodgers back in June. So, Corey, what do you make of this heads or tails of Kenley Jansen? I would not say that overall he's been struggling, but I would say that Saturday night was a forgettable night for Kenley Jansen, probably one of his worst in a Braves uniform. Yeah, he hadn't blown a save since June 26th. He entered the game. He had had a 1.84 ERA over 15 appearances. I mean, you think about it, since he returned from that, a normal heartbeat just been, had been fantastic. Um, but it was an absolute struggle for him. He recorded a strike with just 11 of the 23 pitches. Um, you know, a wild pitch, uh, you know, issues uh, the Paul Goldschmidt five-pitch walk, hits Nolan Arenado. Just nothing seemed to be to be working for him. And then after the game, to his credit, I mean, he he stood there, answered the questions post-game, uh, you know, manned up on all of it, and just said his just it was just everything was just flat. The, the cutter was just flat. And yeah. I, I mean, I know he kind of goes through these situations where, you know, things just aren't working right. A guy gets on and everyone's just waiting for that runner to to take off because the the mechanics and the delivery yeah. are just so slow. He, he doesn't hold runners. He he does not hold runners. But when you dive into the numbers on him, I know that the the I mean it's like an umpire and a referee, right? When they're doing their job right, uh, you don't even notice them. No. When a closer <laughs> is doing what he's supposed to do, it's all right, three outs and we're we're done. And by and large the numbers have still been good for him. 175 average on the season on that cutter. It just he had no feel for it on Saturday night, no. and unfortunately, uh, a game that the Braves had well in hand uh, ends up in the in the loss column. Yeah, and it was a game that felt like it was slowly getting chipped away by the Cardinals, and it felt like that because it was. The Braves jumped out to a four nothing lead against a pitcher who had allowed one run in his first four starts in the Cardinals uniform. They got the three run homer from Travis Darno, and then you had uh, Andrew. Uh, 
Kisner hit a home run for yep. the Cardinals to get him on the board. He had Nolan Arenado hit a two-run homer that made it a one-run game at that time. The Braves had scored another run in their half of the fifth inning, and then you felt like you were executing the right guys at the right time in the right place until Kenley Jansen wasn't able to get the job done. And I know that Kenley, the, one of the things that he said was he's not going to lose sleep over it, and I would say I would like my closer to say that because I don't need him to have long, sleepless nights every single time something doesn't go right. I want him to have the shortest memory of anybody on the field <laughs> and on the team because you may need him to come right back out there and face those same hitters, and that, I think, is what separates the great ones from the good ones or even from the guys that just never can quite get this thing done. And I do think that Kenley Jansen, in his career, while not perfect, not too many closers are. There's going to be those moments that you just look at and you're like, well, I can't believe he was on the hill when that happened. I mean, it happened to Mariano Rivera in the 2001 World Series when the Diamondbacks won, for example. And there are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of examples of closers blowing saves over the years. We both, I think, have long had an affinity for Craig Kimbrell's time in Atlanta. Yep. The Craig Kimbrell that's marching out there right now for the L.A. Dodgers, I mean, they may have said, okay, well, Kenley kind of gave us a little bit more stress than we wanted. <laughs> I think they'd take Kenley Jansen back in a heartbeat if they had a choice between the two because Kimbrell's been pretty rough this year. He has. I mean, Jansen still, he's got 29 saves in the season. He's going to get to 30 for the seventh time in his career. I think it's, it is worth pointing out, this is not the same guy who was saving 40, uh, you know, 41 games and had a 3-4 ERA, uh, 3-4, excuse me, a 3-4 uh, Fangraph War uh, back in 2016-17 era. Mm-hmm. This is a guy that, you know, the walks are a little bit more elevated. You know, the last couple of years it was 4-7 per nine last year. It's 3-2-1 this year. I mean, he's kind of been in that range for these past three seasons. He's not that that extreme dominant guy that he once was. But again, he's still going to get the thirty saves this season. That it just—I mean, look at what's happening with Josh Hader right now. The, yeah. the, the dominant open the door to the bullpen and the tenor of the entire stadium changes closer is really not existing mm-hmm. anywhere at this point in baseball right now. There's there are two guys right now I would point to and say it's about as close to automatic as it gets. One of them's Edwin Diaz, and the other one is Emmanuel Clays, who pitches for the Cleveland Indians. Yeah, or, excuse me, the Cleveland Guardians. Put a dollar in the jar for me there. <laughs> it's. You just don't have that many guys that are doing it. I guess, you know, when the Brewers made their decision, and we'll talk about this a lot later, to move away from Josh Hader, that felt like something that kind of changed the chemistry of their team. But his time in San Diego has been an abject disaster, and the numbers bear it out. So there just aren't that many guys that are automatic, and there are going to be games that get away from you. But again, the good players and the good teams are able to bounce back from this, and that's what the Braves' job is going to be because I can promise you this, over the next, what, 35 games that are remaining in the season – the Braves are going to lose again, and it's probably not going to be very much fun. And some of them are going to be way more disappointing than others. Some of them, you might be down 5 to nothing in the first inning and realize it's just not your night. Others, you may see a one-run lead slip away in the late innings. It just happens that way, and it happens that way to all 30 teams. But for Atlanta, they've been on such a tear, a tear since June. This was a loss, yes, that was very frustrating, but the Braves are still 30 games over 500. Their playoff picture and the hopes are very much still in focus and they're still very much within arm's distance of reaching the New York Mets, who lost on Sunday to the Colorado Rockies. And Max Scherzer took that loss, one to nothing. They were shut out by the Rockies on the road. That's not something that you see too terribly often. Uh, Be that as it may, Kenley Jansen struggles on Saturday aside. The Braves have some other interesting news that I definitely want to get to. As of this coming week, you've got some, I think, important news when it comes to the Braves roster heading towards September. Ozzie Albies could begin a minor league rehab assignment by the middle of the week. He has been out for two months with that fractured foot that he suffered, swinging the bat, and just, you know, it's just a freaky fluke injury. He made this road trip with the club. He has been working out, ramping up his baseball activities. This is some great news, but it's going to lead to a very interesting series of roster decisions over the next 10 days to two weeks, Corey. 
Yeah, I mean, and I know just like you, I mean, we're getting inundated with questions on Twitter. It's like, what do you do with what do you do with Von Grissom? Where where in the world do you do you find ABs for for Von Grissom once you you bring Ozzy Albies back? And um, don't know where you stand on this, but I think at least early on, there's an opportunity to kind of switch them off, you know, DH and second base. I don't know that Ozzy Albies is going to be ready to be out there nine innings each and every game as soon as he gets back into that lineup uh, after the long layoff that he's had. So you know, maybe there's an opportunity there. You know, certainly everyone's saying, well, just throw him in left field, just throw him in left field. So, I mean, I obviously want to hear your take on this, but certainly the, the dominoes that will fall or whichever direction they fall in uh, once Albies comes back, I think it's going to be one of the really fascinating things for this team over the last month. When it comes in a particular of that second base playing time deal, I do think Vaughn Grissom could still draw a start or two there a week. I also think that he could grab the occasional start at short if you wanted to give Dansby Swanson a day off or a day to DH. I mean, you're probably not going to be looking to give your guys too many days off in the middle of a stretch in which you're trying to catch up to the New York Mets. So you've got that going on. But Vaughn Grissom can play second, short, and third. He's athletic enough to play left field. I know that's been a conversation that's gone on and on and on. Should they do it? Can they do it? Can he do it? You know, what's the decision here? And, you know, will they go that route? I think that they could, and I think that they should at least give him the opportunity to go out there. He's athletic enough to play left field. He's going to have the arm for it most certainly. And if you're comfortable enough to put William Contreras out there (laughs) and you're comfortable enough to put – Marcelo Zuna out there, then you should be comfortable enough to give a guy as athletic as Vaughn Grissom the opportunity to get some time out there. And we'll see how that whole thing plays out. But in addition to that, you do still have Marcelo Zuna on your roster for the time being. But I think more specifically than just getting Vaughn Grissom at bats going down the stretch, and he has cooled off a little bit here on this road trip. And that's worth noting because as much fun as it is to watch him when everything's going his way, now the hits have been a little bit harder to come by in the Pirates series and in particular in the Cardinals series as well. He's going to have ups and downs like every single player does. That doesn't mean that he needs to go anywhere other than the major league roster. I'm not saying that. But, you know, you just need to be cognizant of there are DH at bats perhaps for William Contreras who's been swinging the bat extremely well, and I think you owe it to yourself to find ABs for him. Left field between Eddie Rosario and Robbie Grossman has worked out pretty well, but if Ronald Acuna's knee is still barking at him, do you have to all of a sudden play Eddie in left and Robbie Grossman in right or Von Grissom maybe get some time in left? And Ronald Acuna Jr. doesn't play as much in right field, although I think hitting has been as much or more of a problem for Ronald as anything. I mean, running the bases clearly is going to put some stress on him, but he has said that when he's hitting, his knee doesn't feel quite the same. So there's a lot of different decision points to make. And when you do get Ozzy back and you do get uh, Orlando Arcia back and you have to make a decision about your roster call-ups for the September uh, period in which you only get two. Yeah, two, two this year. There are so many different pieces in play right now. Mike Soroka is a consideration. I know he's probably not an early September consideration, but maybe at some point. Darren O'Day is on a rehab assignment right now. They've got to make some decisions here, and I'm just not sure how much longer they can go with Marcelo Zuna not playing at all, and I'm not advocating that he should, and also being on an active spot on your major league roster. Yeah, I mean, it's, obviously the, the Braves are still waiting for the legal process to play out before they decide ultimately what to do with him. But I think the roster crunch in itself may, you know, force them into a decision much sooner than the, the the legality of it all plays itself out. But I'm um, going back to Grissom. I, I completely get that you're athletic enough that you're already playing out of position. Uh, shortstop playing at second base. But you think about Chipper Jones. You know, he twice went to left field, but they went through the yeah. spring to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Is he, are they just going to throw him out there no. without any, you know, opportunity to get accustomed to it? Because he has nowhere to get accustomed to it no. aside from just the major league uh, field. He doesn't, but they tried Austin Riley in left field, and he might have played two no, or they three did games play there. Evan Gaddis, too. They put mm-hmm. Evan Gaddis out there. They put Ryan Klusko out there. Ron Gant was a second baseman, third baseman. Now we're going back three yeah. decades. But be that as it may, I don't think that it this necessarily needs or necessitates him going to the minors to learn this position. 
And sometimes it's just trying something out and seeing if it works. Because I can promise you, no matter how many balls they hit to William Contreras in the two-week spring training in right field or left field, he is not a seasoned major league outfielder. And that would be pretty much bearing out in the fact that he has not seen much of the outfield this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the athleticism is there where you don't question that he can do it. Yeah. I just wonder, in the midst of a pennant race, just throwing a guy out there a position he's never played, it's, it, it's dicey despite the fact yeah. that he's shown he's, he's extremely athletic. I just feel like of all the things that the Braves are dealing with or question marks that they've had to deal with this season, that that's one I'm just not as worried about as others. And maybe that's just being naive because I do think he's a good enough athlete to, to play it. The fact that he has played shortstop, so he's going to be used to the vantage yeah. point of seeing things Harris from the too. left side. I mean, you got a guy who covers so much yeah. ground. It's like, how much is he really going to have to do? Yeah, I mean, and Orlando Arce, I brought him up earlier. They put him in the outfield, and yeah. he was pretty dreadful. So I don't think that Vaughn Grissom could do much worse. Now, I don't know if that's the, the bar that you well. want to set is, well, he can't do much worse <laughs> than this guy, this guy, or this guy. But it just kind of is what it is. You try to find him at bats and plate appearances and all those good things. We got a lot more Braves baseball to talk about as they wrap up their weekend series with the St. Louis Cardinals. We got a lot of other Major League Baseball stories coming your way here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball, talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. And welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you. We appreciate you joining us here on a Sunday night. Braves, of course, are the Sunday night baseball game against the St. Louis Cardinals, though we've got lots and lots of Braves news and discussion to get to on the show, as we always do. Hope you are following along with us on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. He is at Corey J. McCartney. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. And as always, you can subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast and on the Odyssey app as well. So uh, with all of that out of the way, let's take a look at what's going on in the National League races right now. And in particular, let's focus a little bit on the NL East. We talked about this in our opening uh, a few minutes ago, Corey. But, of course, the New York Mets and the Atlanta Braves are still locked in this fight down the stretch they come. And we look at the strength of schedule for these two teams. The Braves are going to have a bit of a harder road than the Mets are going to have. They are going to face some of the teams at the – some of the Mets contingency has claimed that the Braves are just beat up on these bad teams on their way to staying relevant here in the National League East. Well, now the Mets are going to get their turn to beat on uh, to beat up on some teams that they certainly should beat on uh, that are under 500. But I think that the Braves' schedule, while a little bit more challenging than the Mets, it's not altogether that much more difficult. And New York still has this little battle with the Los Angeles Dodgers that could be a pretty pivotal three games for them as the Braves are battling the Rockies and the Marlins this week. So. This still could be a fascinating week ahead. It could. The Mets have a 445 uh, rem, uh, remaining opponent winning percentage, and the Braves are at 475. But as you mentioned, the, the Mets had to go out and deal with the uh, with the Dodgers uh, for the next three games, which is going to be, you know, I mean, it, it, it's going to be an, an absolute blast to watch. You're talking about a team that doesn't lose. Yeah, I mean, the it's, it, it's going to be it's going to be massive. But then, I mean. They're going to be waiting until September 19th through the 21st against the Brewers until they see a team that's above 500. Yeah. And the Brewers are in a very, very bad way now in terms of their uh, their postseason aspirations. And then they won't see another winning team again until they see the Braves here at Truist Park. So, I mean, that's it. I mean, that, that's why it feels like I know that this Dodgers series. I mean, they, the the Mets could go in and lose all three games, and the you know the Braves could find their way against the Rockies, and all of a sudden maybe the Braves are out in front. Maybe they finally take over first place. But that the rest of that September, man, it, it feels like it, it's really you could see the, the the Mets. You know, maybe losing 
four or five games before they even get to the point where they're playing the Braves in that last week of the season. Yeah. Um, it, it's going to be uh, it's it's going to be tough. And with that, we had, talked about this for months now. Uh, it's nearly here, and this you know that that's why everything has felt so big on this road trip. And uh, again, you hate to, to harp on the one game and you know one uh, you know your one instance coming back on you. But what happened Saturday night uh, with Kenley Jansen on the mound could end up being huge. Yeah, uh, considering that's the kind of a game that the Braves have to win at this point in the season. It certainly is, and it's also going to be worth saying right now that while Kenley Jansen's blown save, it could loom large as the current events would dictate. You also have to look back at April and May when the Braves quite simply did not take yeah. advantage of a portion of their schedule in which they should have. They split a four-game series with the Reds. They lost a series to, I believe, the Washington Nationals, if I'm not mistaken. They just had some series that just did not go their way. I mean, the Braves should have been coasting into the end of May, even without, without Ronald Acuna Jr., looking at being a club that's four, five, six, maybe more games over 500, but they were not that club. That 14-game winning streak was really the time, and June 1st was the date, in which things turned around for this Braves club. But now looking down the stretch, um, over the final 30 games, which includes the three-game series that was just wrapped up uh, by the Mets and the Rockies, and then, of course, the Braves and Cardinals are wrapping theirs up. The Braves will get the Rockies, the Marlins, and two against the Oakland Athletics, and three against the Seattle Mariners, who are a playoff hopeful in the American League. They've got a wild-card spot right now. San Francisco Giants are pretty banged up, but that's part of a West Coast trip that has eight games. And then they'll have to face the Phillies, who now have Bryce Harper back in the mix. Then they get the Nationals, then four more with the Phillies. So seven more games with the Phillies while the Mets are done with the Philadelphia Phillies. And they did what they were supposed to. They took series from the Philadelphia Phillies, and in heartbreaking fashion, in some cases, the Braves have six games, though, total against the Washington Nationals before they meet the Mets on September the 30th through October the 2nd. And then there's one more series for both clubs on the other side of that. The Braves have the Marlins and the Mets have the Washington Nationals. So this race is far from over. We're not talking about going down a gauntlet for either club, but I would say the Braves have a little bit harder road. And in particular, all of a sudden, the Philadelphia Phillies seem to loom pretty large in this mix, particularly for the Braves' hopes. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, Bryce Harper back. But to, to clearly paint that picture, 16 games that the Braves have coming up, three against the Mariners, seven against the Phillies within those, those ranks. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a really rough stretch when after the, the, the Mets get past this three-game set against the Dodgers, I mean, it's it's not necessarily you know cruise control, uh, but it, they're going to be in a really strong position at least the what the road is in front of them until they end up here uh, in Atlanta playing in that three game set in the last week of the season. Things have changed so much for the Philadelphia Phillies inside of this season. Of course, they began with Joe Girardi as their skipper. They fired him. Bryce Harper, meanwhile, had a broken thumb. We wondered if he'd play again this year, and we found out the answer to that is yes, he is back, and he is the Philadelphia Phillies DH has been back for a couple of days now, and they're going to be looking to have him you know, make a big-time contribution over not just a couple of weeks, but over the final five or six weeks of the season, Corey. So they're getting Bryce Harper back at a pivotal, important time, and while he was out, that club did everything it needed to do to maintain its relevance in the wild card and have its playoff hopes very much alive. This is exactly the situation Bryce Harper wanted to be walking back into once he was done with that thumb injury. Yeah, I mean, without question, and, and certainly, you know, he has, he, he, you know, what he's capable of once he gets rolling in that that lineup. I mean, Kyle Schwarber's leading the National League in home runs right now. I mean, offensively with him in the mix, and they've obviously gone out and got David Robertson. Uh, the the bullpen has been really good uh, since Thompson took over as the interim, which uh, is a manager. crazy there. thing to it say really about is. the Philadelphia Phillies and on, in general. And on top of that, I mean, they've had a top five pitching staff for the duration of the season, and their starters have been fantastic. Aaron Nola um, has just been lights out. I know Zach Wheeler just went on the IL for them, so that's a bit of a blow. Uh, but certainly, they have you know just uh, everything in place right now with 
you know, the reigning National League MVP back in the mix, and the Braves yeah. have to see them a whole bunch of times here over these next few weeks. Yeah, seven times to be exact here as they come down the stretch, and, you know, the Phillies very much are. a Not just a wild card, hopeful as far as the playoff picture is concerned, but they're quite a wild card inside the National League East because they may not win this division, but they could certainly put a huge dent in the Braves' hopes of winning it, that's for sure. Talking about the National League Central, the first-place Cardinals have been all the rage. They've been red hot. The Brewers have simply you know, fallen in the standings about as quickly as a team possibly can as the cards got hot. Paul Goldsmith's been at the center of this. The resurgent Albert Pujols we've talked a little bit about uh, on last week's show and the fact that he's making a pretty concerted push towards 700 home runs. He's got over a month to hit seven more of those. But I want to really focus in on Goldsmith. We've already seen in the series for the Braves and Cardinals how big of an impact this guy's presence can make and how his hustle can also you know, be one of those things that leads to People seeing his all-around game and feeling like that's the MVP, and I think that he is. But leading the National League in batting average, he's you know one or two in home runs and runs batted in at this point. The Triple Crown is not something we see too often in baseball in general. Miguel Cabrera in 2012 was the first one since 1967 when Carl Yastrzemski did it, but it hasn't happened in the National League since 1937, Corey. So... I would say if you're looking for accolades for your MVP resume, Triple Crown's a pretty darn good one. Yeah, and he's tied right now in RBI with Pete Alonso from the Mets, and he's two away from Schwarber for the home run lead. I'd love to see him get it. I think as, as much as so – it's almost like if you could pick one or the other, would you rather see Albert Pujols get the 700, or would you rather see you know Paul Goldschmidt um, yeah. you know, get that Triple Crown if you're, a, if you're a Cardinals fan? I think if you're a Cardinals fan, you want to see Goldschmidt. Obviously, you love the history of, of Pujols, but – if he's playing at that level, and, and they're running away from the, the Brewers who have been a disaster since the, the trade deadline, um, their offense is middling, the pitching staff has just been flat-out bad. They're 28th, by the way, in bullpen F4 uh, without Josh Hader in the mix there. But um, can, Paul Goldschmidt is, is just, I mean, he's far and away the front-runner for that National League MVP, and uh, we've been seeing it up close and personal in these last couple games. I mean, the man can absolutely hit. By the way, first time in 85 years it would be since a National League player has won the Triple Crown, the last guy that did it was also a St. Louis Cardinal. It was Joe Ducky Medwick who did it in 1937. Wow. So uh, Paul Goldsmith could make a little bit of team history, a little bit of National League history, and uh, just strengthen his MVP candidacy if he's able to track that down. And he'll, of course, be looking to do that as he continues against the Braves on Sunday night and then down the stretch as the Cardinals look to grab the NL Central crown past the Brewers, who have just been in an absolute tailspin. I think it goes beyond just Josh Hader as well. I mean, it messed up the chemistry of this club. He had another year of control or does have another year of control. So trading him now as opposed to the offseason gave the Padres, who got him, the opportunity to have him for this stretch drive and to have him next season. But this has been, as we look at the National League West and what kind of we expected things to play out like, we knew the Dodgers were a club that seemed to be destined to win the NOS. Nobody was going to make enough trades at the deadline to catch the Los Angeles Dodgers. But the Padres, with some big moves and a big return from Fernando Tatis Jr., thought they were going to be a club that perhaps became one of the best in the second half. Juan Soto is now a San Diego Padre. We're not going to see Fernando Tatis. And, man, Josh Hader's woes have just continued to get worse and worse and worse in a Padres uniform. I mean, it's confounding, right? I mean, you're talking about 12 earned runs in four and two-thirds innings over seven appearances since he joined the Padres. He allowed 
16 earned runs in 77 and two-third innings, over 81 games in 2020 and 2021 combined. That's crazy. I mean, he was absolute lights out. Um, you know, maybe Freddie Freeman needs to take a little bit of credit for this, for rocking the ship there with Wendy Gidgett <laughs> in the NLDS last season. Yeah, but, that's true. Um, this is, you know, we talked about the, the dearth of, of that shutdown, you know, automatic uh, closer in baseball. This was the closest thing that we've had in a long, long time to that guy that everyone was scared of in terms of Josh Hader, and, and he is most certainly not that guy anymore. Now, I'm not going to tell you that he's never going to find it again, but it always seems like when you do have that closer, I mean, I'm taking Mariano Rivera and maybe Trevor Hoffman and Bill. Billy Wagner and a couple of other ones, putting them over by the side because they have this this dominant long-term thing going on, particularly Mariano. But most guys, they have this run where it's like three, four, five years where they're at their absolute peak, and then at some point it's hard to replicate that or to reach the lofty standard that you have set because it's hard to do what some of these guys have done, whether it's Hader, whether it's Kimbrell, whether it's Kenley Jansen, Eric Gagne. I mean, he was about as automatic as yeah, it got. Yep. The only thing that derailed the Smoltz train seemed to be his desire to move back to starting. So once John Smoltz rejoined the Braves' rotation, that was the end of his great closing days. But there are plenty of more examples out there of closers that just – it's a volatile position. You just can't expect decades or more of greatness out of these guys because the turnover there, the pressure there, and the – you know, ability to replicate that year over year is one of the hardest things, I think, in the sport to do. And I'm, I don't want to say that maybe they knew, but do you think the Brewers had some inkling that maybe something wasn't right? You know, that we maybe had a couple they, bad ones right before. He did. It? You know, maybe maybe they saw the writing on the wall and thought we're going to get out while the you know the the market's still you know high on this guy and people still hold him in that same same regard. I mean, Devin Williams has not has not replaced his production by any way, shape, or form. But, you know, you think about since since they traded him away, the Brewers have lost to the Pirates, Reds, and Cubs. I mean, they've lost series to these teams that they should be rolling yes. through en route to trying to get to the postseason. They also, it's just not happening. They also went out and signed Trevor Rosenthal. Yeah. And he is a non-factor for them. He's now out for the year. And this is just the latest in a litany of injuries that's derailed Trevor Rosenthal's career. But, you know, I, I just don't know that you can trade away a guy that – you know, even if the luster was starting to kind of wear off and the shine was starting to wear off in some way, shape, or form, that it wasn't going to change that club's overall personality when you do take that, even if he's just a bullpen figurehead, and but he was also productive, it just changes the dynamic of that clubhouse because you're selling one of your most valuable commodities, at least perceived value commodities, at a time in which most clubs would want to be saying, all right, we got Josh Hader, we got Devin Williams, now let's go out and get pick a guy. I mean, maybe it was Rosenthal, and he, he got hurt, and that happens. But it seemed to be the exact opposite for the Brewers. They really didn't seem to address it as much. I know that they got, was it Taylor Rogers yeah, that they got yeah. from the Padres, but he had been having a bad year too. So I just don't feel like that did anything to help them out. And as you look in that National League West, again, we knew what the Dodgers were capable of doing. I mean, we're talking about a club that is now 50 games over 500 at this point, which is an absurd thing to think about because, you know, at this point, I mean, they're going to lose some more games, but they're on pace for well over 100 wins on the season. I mean, what are they approaching? Maybe like a 116 win pace, something of, of yeah, that I mean, they of may, the Seattle they may Mariners? Be, yeah, they may be challenging them for that all-time record, which is, is absolutely wild, but it, it helps them that they've got, you know, they're playing in relatively a weak division, and they see almost exclusively of those West teams down the stretch. I mean, they play their last eight games against the Rockies, so yeah. um, they're going to be in good position to make that change. Yeah, I would say so. I, I would say so. I mean, some of those days in Coors Field can get a little bit wonky, but it doesn't seem like there's too much that's going to be able to knock the Dodgers into a tailspin when it comes to their regular season pursuits. Once you get to the postseason, as we've seen, 
that reset button gets hit. You just got to win those series, and that just is what it is. But you got the Dodgers on top in the West at 88 and 38. The Mets are 82 and 47, and the Cardinals 73 and 54 heading into Sunday night against the Braves. Atlanta, meanwhile, chasing win number 80. They're 79 and 49, 30 games over 500. They're nine and a half games ahead for the top wild card spot. Phillies, meanwhile, 72 and 56. And they've done a lot of that without Bryce Harper. They're two and a half games ahead of the Padres, who are holding the final wild card spot over the listless Milwaukee Brewers, who are heading in the wrong direction. So it feels like right now, if you're looking at the wild card, it's the Braves, it's the Phillies, it's the Padres. The Brewers are going to have to figure something out quick. They have one back to back games, but they are going to have to start replicating that success moving forward because the Giants are the next team down and they have just wilted and fallen below 500 on the year by losing four in a row. So your your playoff chances per fan graphs, Dodgers, Mets, Braves, all 100%, Cardinals 96.2, Phillies 91.7, Padres 72.7, then it drips down to 38.3 for the Brewers. I feel like the Brewers, their next 15 games are going to be everything for them if they're going to end up making it in, but it feels like it's those those teams above them, uh, and that's where you firm, draw a firm line right now. It really does. So that's what's going on in the National League. Of course, lots to focus on here in the East, as we always do, as the Braves and Mets reach this pivotal time of year, and we'll see how things will play out. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney here with you on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you as always. We got lots to get into here still as the Braves and Cardinals wrap up their weekend series on Sunday Night Baseball, and then the Braves will turn their attention toward a homestand in which you'd hope you can make up a little bit of ground. You got the Colorado Rockies, you got the Miami Marlins rolling into town, and we'll talk a little bit more about that after we take a look at what's been going on in the American League here over the past week. And I think this has been a very interesting second half that lets you know don't make any assumptions about any team, no matter how good they look. And while I did just get done telling you that the Dodgers at 50 games over 500 are in pretty good place to win the National, or yeah, to win the National League West, uh, the Yankees are still in pretty good position to win the American League East. But you talk about a team that's showing a lot of cracks, Corey. This team feels like one that has just not fallen on like hard times per se, like in the dusty road parlance or any other way. But they've had some guys underperform. They have had some trade acquisitions that haven't seen the field or haven't made a difference. They've suffered some more injuries and. It just kind of feels like that this is a team that all of a sudden, once the calendar hit the month of August, kind of forgot who it is. Yeah, I mean, they just split a series over the weekend with the A's of, of all teams, you know, losing back-to-back games. They seem to have found their footing, you know, after losing a series to the Blue Jays. They take down the Yankees and, uh, the, excuse me, the Mets in two games, and then they win the first two games out there, one of them in absolutely dominating fashion over the A's, and then they mm-hmm. lose, you know, the, the last two of that series. I mean, Judge obviously continues his, you know, pace towards Roger Maris there in the all-time Yankees single-season home run record, but Nestor Cortez is now on the IL. So, right. you know, that's, I mean, that's obviously, he doesn't have an arm injury, but you know they're still going to have him out. They don't have a timetable on when he's expected back. Um, they are getting Clay Holmes back. Um, you know, they have Scott Efros, who they got though at the trade deadline, is out until September. So their bullpen is taking ahead, as you mentioned. I mean, Harrison Bader hasn't even taken the field no, yet. No, but he them. is going to start running here soon. Yeah. So that's good. He's been dealing with a, a planter issue, and he's the guy they got for Jordan Montgomery. And they could I mean, use all the pitching they could get. <laughs> Montgomery's gone over to the St. Louis side of things, and and looked like a pretty astute pickup. And you know, that I think is probably the frustration of it is oh, I'm sure, yeah. You have your problems, you you suffer your losses, and you're trading away arms at this point. I think a lot of industry experts or fans or anybody who's savvy with baseball says, Why are you trading away pitching at this time of year? Seems like the wrong time to do it. And maybe this kind of 
rings through to what the Brewers did with Josh Hader. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned so I mentioned Cortez is on the IL. Luis Severino, but he's expected back. Luis Severino right. is expected back. They, they're going to try to get him a few starts before he, you know, in September before heading into the postseason. Then they have this crazy story with Rollis Chapman in the last few Ugh. days, who decided <laughs> that the a postseason push is when you're supposed to go out and get a new leg tattoo. He can't wait until the, the off season. You got to get that thing done now. You got to get it done. You got to get it done in the middle of August. And you know, he's got an infection and. Um, you know, just a, a bizarre, a bizarre story for a team that's had a lot of really bizarre stories in the 2022 season. And Rollis Chapman is a pretty expensive player who's not performing the role in which he was signed to do, which is, of course, close games for the Yankees. He has not really been the guy they've needed. I mean, here's another one. You talk about closers who have had at times absolutely dominant streaks. Yep, it just does not last forever. And for some guys, they age gracefully. Trevor Hoffman is a guy that I've mentioned earlier. He aged gracefully. I mean, at one point, Trevor Hoffman was a pretty hard-throwing closer. His changeup was always his signature pitch, but as he got into his 30s, at late 30s and early 40s, it was just that that changeup was so good, and his fastball really just he had to locate, and that's all he had to do, and maybe that's the trick for all pitchers. Locate and have one thing that hitters can't just figure out or, uh, or whatever the case may be. But for Aroldis Chapman, yeah, he's not really making the best decision because his season has just been – you know, just cratering essentially in terms of his overall value and impact on this club. And now he's going to miss time for doing something that, again, could have waited until the offseason. He has a 4.70 ERA and 36 appearances this season. So, as you mentioned, he's absolutely not gotten it done. But I don't think anybody, I mean, obviously there's been kind of like an avalanche of stuff happening for the Yankees that you don't want to happen at this time of the year. But on the flip side of it, they've gone through their lull. Uh, we knew it was going to happen eventually, but at least from their perspective, they went through their lull before we're getting into those couple weeks before the postseason starts. They're sure. in the midst of six straight, uh, you know, against uh, uh, sub-500 teams. They're still up, you know, eight games on the the Rays in the division. So they're still in a really good, you know, position right now. I don't think anybody's worried, but certainly uh, you, you're going to have your downtime like this, at least it happened for them, you know, before we start talking about it being mid-September. Yeah, I think that the Rays have trimmed it to inside of eight games now, but that is still a pretty good lead to be taking into September. It would take, I don't know, want to say a historic collapse, but it would take a pretty epic collapse to lose an eight-game lead in the final month. Yeah, seven and a half now, by the um, way. The Blue Jays are nine games out. They've lost three in a row, though, so just when it seems like they kind of have something going on, they seem to either lose a series or hit a lull that just sets them back. Not necessarily in the wild card, because you know, Toronto is a club that has been in that wild card chase all season long and, in fact, is holding on to one of the wild card spots, the final one, just ahead of one of the great stories in baseball. Let's talk about the Baltimore Orioles, who have really no business being where they are. If you go look at all the preseason predictions for where this club would be, they were ticketed for 100 more losses, Corey. And if anything, this is a team that has a chance to have its first 500 or better season in quite a few years and could be a surprise entry into the postseason. That's just the kind of baseball story I enjoy in September. Yeah, I mean, they've been fantastic, right? And obviously, Adley Rutschman comes up and has been, you know, I mean, he, he actually overtook Julio Rodriguez uh, for the lead this past week in Fangraph's war among He's uh, a rookies. Great so player. He, he really is. And the Orioles are obviously, they're not going to win AL MVP. They're not going to have anybody win AL MVP, right? But can Adley Rutschman win Rookie of the Year? And I think that would almost kind of probably feel like an MVP award for them because they've played well above 500 baseball since he was called up. And, you know, while at the moment maybe that felt like, okay, we're now seeing, you know, some of the pieces that they had from the rebuild kind of kind of fruition. And now, mm-hmm. you know, if you're an Orioles fan, you get to go out and finally see that product. He has been crucial in them getting over that hump and even being in this position. Um, so I, I think it's going to be interesting because I've, I kind of had, you know, Rodriguez just penciling in this, you know, that's the guy. I mean, 
this is a superstar in the making. But if the Orioles wind up making the postseason, does what Rutschman has done for them this season loom larger than this kind of superstar turn that we've seen out of Julio Rodriguez in Seattle, who we'll get into in a moment, on that monster new contract of his? But I think it makes for a fascinating conversation in who should end up being AL Rookie of the Year. Yeah, first three weeks for Enley Rutschman when he came up, he was batting 153, OPSing 451. It seemed like he might just be a little bit overmatched, might have made it to the big leagues a little bit early. Well, not so fast with that, I'm afraid. 62 games since then. The Orioles, in those 62 games, Rushman has played 41 and 21. He's OPSing over 900. He's drawing plenty of walks. He's showing some power. He doesn't strike out that much. I mean, this is a well-rounded player who, I mean, this is how you become a number one overall pick. It's how you become a number one overall prospect in your organization or all of baseball. This guy checks a lot of the boxes. And for the Orioles, a club that very much is still rebuilding right now despite their success this year, this has to make them feel pretty good about hitting a home run with what feels like a guy that could be a franchise player for them. 166, way to run creative plus here in the month of August. He had 152 uh, in July. You talked about it. I mean, he was, he was hitting 43% below league average his first month of the season. Um, he has been absolutely electric and, you know, just uh, for what he's been able to do for that pitching staff back there. They have so many young arms uh, in that, in that uh, staff across the rotation in the bullpen. And then trading away their, you know, their their all star closer too in the process, and then still being uh, in the mix here for a, a wild card spot. And then good news for them, their you know, GM comes out in the last week. Uh, Michael Elias comes out and says, we're going to put money towards this team in the offseason mm-hmm. to go out and get even better. I mean, the, the AL East is going to be, we thought it was tough now, but you had the O's start putting money into things. I mean, it, it's going to be ridiculous trying to get through that schedule. Yeah, speaking of spending money and putting some, uh, I would say, investment into the future of your franchise, we're going to talk about what the Mariners did uh, with Julio Rodriguez, who you brought up as perhaps the front runner for the Rookie of the Year. He and Rushman, I think, is, I mean, it's down to those two, at least in my book. Yeah. But I don't have a vote either, so my book is not going to sell for too awful much. But before we do get into the West, and I do want to talk about this Rodriguez contract extension that the Mariners handed out, uh, we once again look into the AL Central, and we once again see basically the same story that we've been seeing for quite some time. You know, If you look at the two teams at the top, Right now it's the Cleveland Guardians. The Minnesota Twins are trying to chase them down. They've lost 6 out of 10, but have won three in a row. And the Chicago White Sox continue to be who we thought that they were, at least based on this year's numbers, a team that walks guys with two strikes intentionally and has also lost four in a row and has once again pushed itself out of both the wild card, at least in terms of being within a couple of games of that, and trying to win this division, which if you're asking any of these teams, Cleveland, Minnesota, or Chicago, you want to win that division because this wild card is not going to be a whole lot of fun when you try to jump the dog pile that's already over there in the American League East. Yeah, I just can't. I don't. I don't think any other teams are getting in via the the wild card. The Twins yeah. are three games you out right now. Either win that division or go home. I think. It, I mean, it really feels like that. It's the same thing for the the National League Central. Uh, you're going to win that division, or you're setting home for the postseason. And you know the the White Sox keep dealing with more history, more injuries. Yoan Moncada is now on the the uh, IL. Same thing. I mean, the Twins now Byron Buxton. We thought he was going to avoid it all season long. He's back on the IL now for the first time this season. They may get Kenta Maeda back though, um, which could be really interesting for them right. down the stretch. But if um, that's the interesting story for yeah. you down the stretch, <laughs> it pretty much tells you that it's not been the yeah. most intriguing race in that central. But again, somebody's going to get an opportunity to play in October, and I do think it's going to be the clear path to win that division rather than trying to compete in that wild card. You can't just fall back on that and hope that it's there for you because it may not be. Now, something that's going to be in Seattle for a long time is Julio Rodriguez. I mean, we are very familiar here in Atlanta with locking down young players to big contracts to keep them around for a decade or more. Austin Riley just signed one. Heck, Matt Olson signed one back before he did back in March. 
And then we had Michael Harris here a week or two ago signing his long-term deal to stay in Atlanta and perhaps another one in the offing if Dansby Swanson and the Braves can get this whole thing figured out. Some of these guys, in particular Harris and Riley, a little bit more along what we're talking about here with locking up a young player for what could be the bulk of his entire career. This deal was announced on Friday. The 21-year-old all-star outfielder Julio Rodriguez and the Mariners, this long-term contract, it's guaranteeing $209.3 million over 12 years, and it starts next season, but it could be worth up to nearly $470 million over 17 years. And all he has to do, Corey, is win two MVP awards. And you've got some of the other details, but this is one yeah. of the most unique and fascinating and different contracts I have ever seen in any sport. It's so wild. And I will say the last 10 months, we've seen three of the largest contracts ever for players with under a year of service time. you got the Rays Wander Franco at, at $182 million over 11 years. Obviously, here in Atlanta, you mentioned it. Michael Harris, eight years at 72. This absolutely takes the cake. You mentioned uh, the, what the base is there, but the escalator's on it. He gets a, If he gets two or three top 10 MVP finishes, it moves to 240 over eight years as the, the option. If he gets four top 10 finishes, it's 260 over eight years. And then it's 280 over eight years if he wins an MVP and finishes in the top five once or more or finishes in the top five MVP voting balloting on three occasions, 350 over 10 years if he wins two MVP awards or finishes among the top five and balloting or four kids. You know, like those flow charts where it's like you start here and it's like one. you do this. I think Julio Rodriguez is going to have one above his locker trying to figure out how in the world he's going to make $470 million. But man, it's a, this thing is, it, it, this is absolutely, and then if all that fails, he has his own player option, five years, $90, $90 million that he can exercise after year eight. Yeah, I think the financial term for that is a golden parachute, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I mean, like this dude is going to be an may not be the actual application of that term, but either way, he has a very good alternative that even if he can't max out this deal to remaining in Seattle, even if he's just a useful player, this is a deal that's going to work out, I think, pretty well for both sides. If he becomes a superstar that many people believe he can be, and if you had any indication of what in the world he did in that home run derby, the likes of which I haven't seen too many performances like that, and I know it's it's glorified batting practice home run hitting contest, but what he was doing there was just a, a different style. And then more importantly, the way that you see him play day in and day out for Seattle has been extremely impressive. So uh, Rodriguez' contract, though, is the 26th in baseball history for $200 million or more. Uh, so a $15.3 million signing bonus is going to be coming his way. He's only making $700,000 this year, though, Corey. So <laughs> he's going to have to spend that money very, very wisely. Right. But as far as the West race is concerned, we know the Houston Astros have been that club uh, that took over that division after their great winning streak and after the Angels kind of fell on their face. And by kind of, I mean definitely fell on their face. Uh, now, maybe so much so that Artie Moreno has decided, I'm ready to cash out here with the Los Angeles Angels and sell this club. He bought it for less than $200 million, but Corey, he could sell this thing for a couple billion. Yeah, the estimate is $2.5 billion that he could get for this team. And he obviously was known as being really hands-on, almost like the kind of Jerry Jones to a degree. And I think the big question now is if he does sell this team, you know, we heard they were not going to trade Shohei Otani. They're not going to trade Shohei Otani. If a new owner comes in, I mean, and convince him to sign long-term, okay, maybe that happens. A new owner could also come in and realize that trading him, while it could be extremely painful, uh, may be the best path forward. So I think this is going to be, you know, what happens to Shohei Otani, I think, as is as important um, as who ultimately owns this franchise going forward. It'll be the big story out of the gate. Let me ask you this real quick. We don't have a ton of time for it, but just kind of a gut reaction. Do you think that this would necessitate, much in the way when the Marlins sold, that they move Giancarlo Stanton, that they would think, hey, you know what? The time is right to move Mike Trout somewhere. Now, he has his long-term contract, his no-trade coverage, his 10-5 and rights, all this other stuff. 
he could agree to a deal that would take him somewhere else. It would be very complicated, and I would imagine very painful to trade perhaps the best player of this generation. I think we're going to get an owner who understands the market and is going to want an, a second. I know it's not L.A., but a, a second team in that same you know hemisphere. I, we're going to get another owner who wants to go toe to toe and, and go equal with the Dodgers. I, I think that's my gut reaction. You're getting someone who's coming to play that's taking over the Angels. All right, we'll see how that all plays out. As for right now, it's the Yankees on top in the East, the Guardians in the Central, it's the Astros in the West, and when it comes to that wild card, it is still going to be going through the East. It's got the Rays with the Mariners and the Blue Jays holding onto those three spots. When we come back, we'll take a look ahead at what's to come for this week with the Atlanta Braves. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney from the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios as we close out our show and get ready for a big week ahead for the Atlanta Braves. So let's talk a little bit about this, Corey, because we know that every series and every game for the Braves right now is of pivotal importance as they battle things out on Sunday night. They want to take a series from the St. Louis Cardinals, of course. That would be a nice way to close out the road trip despite a very frustrating outcome that took place on Saturday. But when you look big picture at what's been going on for the Braves on this road trip, I mean, they needed to go beat up on the Pirates. They did exactly that. You know you know that the schedule between the Braves and the Mets is a little bit of an advantage towards the New York Mets. Maybe not a ton, but it's, it's enough to be noticeable, that's for sure. But if the Braves were looking for a soft part of their schedule, they've got it coming up here. The Colorado Rockies, though they did just beat the Mets and help out the Braves by a one nothing score on Sunday, they could come in and do some damage to the Braves' playoff hopes if Atlanta is not up to their A game and able to knock off this Colorado club. It's an off day on Monday, and then on Tuesday through Thursday, a three-game series against the Colorado Rockies. I'm calling this a key week, not because this is going to be like that week where you battle the Mets and the Astros and like you're battling the Cardinals, a bunch of first-place teams. These are the games you're supposed to win, Corey, and it all starts on Tuesday night against Jose Urania. Remember that name? Because his Marlins days and his... I would say rivalry, if you will, perhaps. The infamy that he lives in at Truist Park and with Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, Ronald's supposed to be back in the lineup on Tuesday. So just one of many, many interesting stories we've got going into this week. Yeah, Acuna has a 880 uh, career OPS against him. He's only taken him deep once, has one double. It feels like he's probably taken him deep like 10 times inside your head. He's got a very head, notable hit-by-pitch. Yeah, if I mean... I think everyone's going to be on the edge of their seat to see if that happens, right? I mean, there's no way he's going to, he's not going to do that, is he? I, mean, I could not imagine a scenario in where it would be either yeah, necessary nor appropriate for him to do that. But being as that many of the things that went on between the Miami Marlins and the Atlanta Braves in terms of hit-by-pitches has felt both unnecessary and uncalled for, maybe, but let's hope not. But Jose Urania has been... Uh, added to the Colorado pitching staff. It hasn't really been the rejuvenation of his career, but he is still in a big league uniform. He'll be on the mound. Max Fried, meanwhile, is going to make this start for the Braves. I know there was some thought, perhaps, just based on the off days of throwing Freed against the Cardinals on Sunday night. That didn't happen. Jake Odorizzi got that start. So you got Freed, Kyle Wright, and Spencer Strider you're throwing at the Rockies. Those are three guys you want to throw at a team if you're going for a sweep, aren't they? Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm going to be interested to see what Strider does. I mean, he's been, I mean, he's looked fantastic, right? I mean, you know, just his last three outings. I mean, they've been against the leaders of the NL Central, the AOS, and the NL Central, and, and excuse me, the AL. He said the NL East, the AOS, and the NL Central. So the Mets, Astros, and Cardinals. Yeah. And he's held them to a one five nine ERA, a one nine four batting average, and twenty strikeouts. 
Obviously, he's now at 158 strikeouts. He's just 12 away from the modern era franchise rookie record set by Julio Tehran in 2013. Oh, I was going to see if he let me guess. Oh, I'm My sorry. Guess is going to be Julio Tehran. But I, I, th- you know, I thought it was really interesting against the Cardinals. You know, his, a- his average fastball was 98.4, point two higher than his season average. So if you wondered if the innings were going to kind of start to become an issue for Spencer Strider, I mean, he is he is showing that it is absolutely not the case. Nope. And I mean, he looks fantastic right now. I mean, in uh, him going against a bottom five offense. Uh, in the Rockies, I mean, that's th- this could look a lot like that Pirates yeah. series where you just have a lot of really dominant starting pitching for the Braves. Now, I know that Spencer Strider has had uh, different starts and, and multiple starts in a row in which he struck out more guys than he has in his last three starts, but I think I've been more impressed with the way that he has been pitching lately, and we've seen that fastball, that 98-99, hanging around deep into these starts, and there had been a time where it seemed like he would throw 100, 101, 102 miles an hour in the first couple of three innings, and all of a sudden – it's 97 for the rest of the night, and pretty much that's it. But I, I feel like he's done such a great job of continuing to do the things that work so well for him, which is pound the strike zone with the fastball. His slider is looking pretty good, and it's also got this changeup that I think is emerging as that third pitch that's just going to give hitters one more thing to have to deal with, and it's just going to make that fastball look like it gets on him that much quicker. Yeah, I think that's. The, I mean, I'm going to say you're seeing growth in a guy who I'm not going to trump, you know, trump out those uh, development. Yeah, I mean, I, I just hate those cliches of saying a guy's learning to be a pitcher and not a thrower anymore. Well, but I mean, you know, but I, I think you're certainly with him. You know, you're learning. You're seeing a guy who is is learning that it's okay to back off and have a little bit more. I mean, Justin Verlander has literally built a career on that, mm-hmm. right? Like, okay, it's the seventh inning. I can still hit you 99 if I need to because I didn't top out mm-hmm. uh, in the first couple. Of Innings. I think we're getting a little bit closer to that kind of development uh, with Strider. I mean, you, you mentioned that the, the, I mean he's got a nine-five batting average against with that changeup, which continues to get better. Uh, the sliders at one four nine. Uh, he just to me, it's just it's it's beyond the fastball. It's it's just how much better overall he's getting. So you're saying opposing hitters are hitting below 100 against his changeup this year? Oh nine five against people that should be aware of that when yeah. you're hitting 095 against something that I mean you would think that the fastball average clearly is going to be below 200. His slider is going to be down there you know, because overall there's just really not it's not an easy ride for anybody. And to go back to what you were saying and not to you know throw it into the cliche of oh well he was just a thrower. I don't think at any point I've really looked at Spencer Strider and said, well, he's just a thrower. But when you are that high-velocity, high-octane guy, the focus is really on that as being the thing that people notice the most. But I do think he has learned, to his credit and to the development of the organization, to be a pitcher, a big league pitcher, a guy that does more than just out-talents the class that he's at because he out-talented, I'm sure, a lot of guys in college. I'm sure he out-talented a lot of guys in the minor leagues on his way up. And he's out-talented some big league hitters. But if you want to get here and stay here, you've got to continue to learn and do the things that you need to do. And I feel like he's done a great job of doing that and of getting better as the season's worn on. Again, I've seen him strike out you know, 10, 12, 11, 13 batters in a start. That hasn't happened in the last three starts, but I don't think I've been more impressed at a stretch of the season out of Spencer Strider more so than I was when he went through that gauntlet of the Mets and the Astros, and the Cardinals. The thing about Jordan Hicks from the Cardinals, now the Cardinals would love for a guy that has the stuff that he has and hits the velocity he has and has that nasty slider, almost 102 at at times, uh, that he he could bring over the plate. They would love to get to the point that Strider's at right now with Hicks and kind of develop him in that way where they can get some more innings out of him. But he just doesn't, I I just don't know what the missing element is for him, and this obviously we're not going to dive too much into the Cardinals, but I think it's the fact that you've got a guy that has that such high-end stuff that it would be very easy to paint Spencer Strider into a box 
and have him go out and mm-hmm. gas out and just say, this is your job. But the fact that you've seen it develop, I, I mentioned that change, that change up again. He's thrown 101 of them this season and has a .095 average against a 47% whiff rate on that pitch. I mean, it's it all is all set up by that incredibly nasty fastball, and we just are continuing to see a guy. You know, I talked about the the fascinating debate on the AL Rookie of the Year. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is it? Is it Michael Harris the second? Is it Spencer Strider? Is it both of them? I mean, it, this is going to be. I mean, we could probably do half an hour just on who ends up being National League Rookie of the Year. We could tune in next weekend when we do half an hour of it. <laughs> now we'll do something when it comes time for award yeah. season. I'm sure here as we continue our show, we'll go on beyond just the close of the playoffs, but. It, in the in the race right now, I think the next five weeks is really going to tell us that story because Spencer Strider has a good chance to get to 200 strikeouts. I mean, you talk about the modern you know rookie record for Braves pitcher Julio Tehran when he set that in 2013. That 170, I mean, he was a totally different pitcher than he was at the end of when he was with the Braves. Just a totally different mm-hmm. guy. However, with Spencer Strider, we're talking about a completely different animal than what Julio Tehran was, quite obviously. And that's not to knock Julio, but to see a rookie be able to pile up strikeouts at this rate, you just don't see it too terribly often. I mean, guys that come to mind are Kerry Wood, Mark Pryor, I mean, recently, and I know that the injury things, you know, aside for them are usually the stigma, but when you talk about rookies coming up and piling, Doc Gooden, hey, there's another Mm -hmm. one that, you know, it wasn't injuries for him so much, but... Either way, it's just very rarely do you see guys come up and do what Spencer Strider has done. If he gets the 200 strikeout plateau and keeps doing what he's done over the next five weeks, Michael Harris may have some company on that ballot, and it may well be Spencer Strider's uh, Rookie of the Year award. And those two guys can talk about it over the next five, six, seven years, hopefully, as teammates on the Atlanta Braves, if not longer, in the case of uh, Michael Harris, of course. Uh, a couple of other things I saw on this road trip that were worth looking at. You know, before Charlie Morton got knocked around on Saturday, the Braves rotation had really settled into a nice run of being able to go out and provide quality starts. And not just the six runs, or excuse me, the six innings and three earned runs or less, but I'm talking about really good starts, you know, one after another after another. That's exactly what they're going to need this week against some really bad clubs. I mean, we talked about the Rockies a little bit with the Marlins. I mean, their offense has just fallen off a cliff without Jazz Chisholm. They just cut Jesus Aguilar. So, I mean, there's been some changes that have been going on down there as well. Their pitching staff outside of Sandy Alcantara, who we will see in the upcoming series, has not really – I mean, Pablo Lopez, I guess, has been pretty good this year. But other than that, that starting five has really not been able to solidify the way that they hoped it would this year. The Braves pitching staff, meanwhile, I feel like, despite having some serious question marks at times, has really turned into a group that you can count on. I mean, it really has. I, I'm kind of fascinated, though. On Friday, so on Friday night, you've got Charlie Morton against Sandy Alcantara, who you know everyone. You know, I mean, I, I think he's the the nationally uh, Cy Young winner. But again, we'll get into those kind of debates le- later. But I'm interested to see how what what Morton we're going to see because he went really curveball heavy that last time out. Yeah. Um. In, in against the Cardinals, 45.2 percent, and he, they hit 300 against that pitch. He allowed three hits on the 42 he threw. That was the highest average he's had on that pitch since May 31st. So his last four outings have been 45. 47 4, 49-5, and 40.6 curveball usage. That's the most to the pitch over any stretch of the season. The Cardinals clearly did their homework. Yes. So what is he going to look like on Friday night against a kind of sometimes hapless Marlins uh, lineup? I think whatever adjustments he makes, I think are gonna is something really fascinating to watch. I still think that he's gonna throw the, the curveball 40% or more of the time, and I do think that's a recipe for success for him, but I feel like realizing that the Cardinals in a couple of key spots were really sitting curve. Nolan Arenado in particular was sitting curveball, and that was just a hanger that was deposited over the left field wall, and there was nothing cheap about that one. And Nolan Arenado, by the way, has been hitting like the guy that he was in Colorado, and he's still playing that premium platinum glove defense for the Cardinals as well. So 
you know, you're going to get beat by some good players sometimes, but for Charlie in that start, it just wasn't as sharp. He was not getting the kind of swings and misses he was in the prior two starts with his double-digit strikeout outings, and he only struck out with four guys in five mm-hmm. innings. He labored, I would say, 93 pitches just to get through the five innings on top of that. But, you know, Charlie has looked better here in the second half, I feel like, and there are going to be some that just aren't as good as others, and that was clearly the case on Saturday. The strength of Spencer Strider, though, Kyle Wright and Max Fried coming back from their you know very brief time off and getting back into the rotation has certainly been a, a welcome sight for Atlanta. And then, of course, you're hoping that Jake Odorizzi can continue to fortify the fifth spot of the rotation. If you don't, you know, maybe there's this guy, Mike Soroka. We haven't talked about him much here, and we don't need to spend a ton of time on it, but his third rehab assignment, uh, or third start of his rehab assignment, took place uh, yesterday. And, you know, he did have a, he ran into a four run second inning, and that's just something that will happen to you at just about any level. But to his credit, he allowed one more base runner in his final two and two thirds innings. He got himself up to 75 pitches. I said this on Twitter, and I'll say this here the velocity is there, the stuff is there. Right now, it's about refinement and command and making sure that you build up that arm strength. It's 75 pitches at this point. That's something that jumps off the page to me, more so than a bunch of AAA guys might have jumped on him for, you know, some weak contact. He didn't give up any home runs. It was just one of those innings. So I'm not really looking at the line score as much as I'm looking at the radar gun and the pitch count and hearing from Mike Soroka. How do you feel? Yeah, I think to me too, it's like how does he feel the next day, right? Like what, how does he feel after they continue to build up the you know the the workload that he has to go through each time? Because I, I don't think anyone's worried about it because you you know I mean the the sinker all that stuff has has he's talked about it feeling great you know the touch being there mm-hmm. you know feeling really happy with where his pitches are. I don't I'm not necessarily I mean like you I don't I don't care about that line score. I just want to know how he feels after it. Yeah. And then you know how do you fit him into this? Does he you know do you give him some starts? Do you end up using him long relief at points? I mean I think how. How he factors in uh, over these when he is ready, I, I think. I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see how they juggle all this. It will be, and I think with Mike making some mechanical adjustments as well, maybe getting comfortable with what is the new normal for him. And you know, I think he's far beyond having his patience tested by the rehab and the things that he's gone through. That physically, is he worried about the Achilles at this point? I'm not really sure that he is. I mean, is it a passing thought every once in a while? Probably because he's human, even though it seems like he might be a pitching machine at times. But this is just another decision that the Braves may have to make at some point in September. I'm not saying take him out of the, the frying pan and throw him into the fire, bringing him back to the big leagues too early. Go through all the steps. Make sure everything's good. And if he is a guy that you feel like can help you, then great. If he's not, then you've gone through a very significant and important period of his rehab to have him ready for 2023. That's why he's down there throwing innings at the very least, is to make sure he can get himself back on track to get on a big league mound. If it doesn't happen in September – I feel like we'll be seeing Mike Soroka hopefully next spring coming back and vying for a spot in the Atlanta Braves rotation. That, of course, is a show for another time. As we look at the probables ahead against the Colorado Rockies, it's Max Fried against Jose Urania. It's Kyle Wright against Ryan Feltner. And then Spencer Strider will be throwing against Chad Cool. That's going to be Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday for those games. And the Marlins come in Friday through uh, Sunday for a three-game series. So six games against sub-500 clubs, Corey. We already laid out what the Mets schedule looks like and the soft schedule that they're dealing with after they deal with the L.A. Dodgers. But right now, this week, if you wanted a time to perhaps make up that ground and turn the heat up here, beat up on the Rockies and the Marlins, let the Dodgers maybe have their 
have their way, if you will, with the Mets because it's not going to be an easy ride for New York going out to Dodger Stadium. It won't. And then with the A's to follow for two games as that West Coast road trip gets started, this next uh, eight-game set, I think, for the Braves is going to be really important because whatever happens in L.A., it's hard to believe that the Mets are going to go out there and not walk away with something in the in the loss column. So um, the Braves an opportunity to certainly eat into that lead a little bit more. Maybe if things break their way, maybe even end up taking that taking that over for the first time this season. Uh, but certainly going to be a fascinating week ahead. Yeah, it's going to be hard fought if they are going to be able to get to that point, but they have been fighting hard since June the 1st, one of the best records in all of baseball, and that is what has led the Braves from a slow start to being one of the hottest teams in the big leagues over the last three months, but can they keep this going over the final five or six weeks? Corey, as always, thank you for making some time here on a Sunday. Colin, thanks for taking good care of us here tonight in the Kia Studios. I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.